Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello. Hello! I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jess. And Dory, well, for now. <laughs> we'll see how things go. It's been a long night, folks. <laughs> Welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take deeply researched and deeply irreverent dives into lesser-known stories of the early United States, with a particular emphasis on presidents, but not always. Not always. No. We're deeply interested in other things as well. Yeah, you know Buffy the Vampire Slayer? <laughs> <laughs> she the kids from stranger things oh no i'm not talking about things we're interested in i was trying to make oh. a metaphor and then what's your an metaphor? analogy she slayed lots of things not just vampires okay but it's I, right there in her name are you comparing yourself to buffy the vampire slayer yeah because I'll, I'll put up posts that are like oh burr versus hamilton and there will be comments like neither, uh, neither uh, one of them were ever president <laughs> and my response have you is, seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer? <laughs> no, no. I just say, wait, what? I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> That's what you say. Yes. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Thank you. You appreciate it. <laughs> what do they what do they respond with? They either delete their comment or <laughs> they don't respond. Okay. Today uh, you have the world by its toe. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Got the world by its toes and my fingers and lots of pies. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but I associate that with a lot of gross things. Yeah, it's from your time at that pie shop where all those bad things happened. <laughs> it must be that time. Yeah. Today, we have a treat. Oh, yeah? An interview with a medical historian. Wow. Tegan Kehoe. Medical historian. Yes, a historian of medicine. Wow. You can have like... A specialty. A specialty in history. <laughs> yes. Like a, a historical specialty. Yes. Tegan Kehoe, she joins me it's today. A great name. Yeah. To talk about her new book, Exploring American Healthcare Through 50 Historic Treasures. Oh, yeah. This is exciting. Yes. But first, I have a little medical history story for you about Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Yeah. Did Benjamin Rush try to bleed him out? <laughs> no, you wish. <laughs> I don't wish that. Okay. I mean, it was 1818. Jefferson was 75 years old. And he was suffering from painful rheumatism in his knee. Mm. He was also focusing on putting all his myopic, obsessive energy into his newest project, which was the University of Virginia that he was creating. Got it. And that involved a lot of political maneuvering, including going to a conference, the Rockfish Gap Conference. That's an interesting name. Yeah, I think it was based on the place where it was held. Okay. Um, but it was put together by the governor of Virginia it was going to determine where the official University of Virginia would be and whether it would be at the foot of Jefferson's Mountain, where he just happened to be building a college. <laughs> so this boring conference happens. Jefferson gets what he wants, and he decides he's going to extend his trip. He's going to go further west to treat himself. He was going to Warm Springs, Virginia, a place with... Hot springs? Warm springs. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Unless there are biting flies. I know you had a bad experience in some hot springs recently. 
Yeah. Wait till you hear about Jefferson's experience. Oh, no. Leeches? No, no, no. Just like wait. Just wait. Amoebas? <laughs> no amoebas. I mean, how would he know? They're so tiny. Because <laughs> um, you get really sick or you die. Oh, yeah. No, those, well, you'll see. So these springs are about 100 degrees all year long. That's 38 degrees Celsius, Leandro. That's our brand new patron in Ireland. Oh, cool. Yeah, welcome aboard. Well, welcome aboard. Do you have any nicknames, Leandro? Do people call you Leo, Andro? Like, do you have nicknames? Good question. <laughs> Maybe. Get back to us. Maybe you'll write back. Do you have nicknames? Yes, no. <laughs> Check yes. Yes. <laughs> Leandro. I love that name. Yeah. These warm springs, they might have been warmed by magma deep underground. Because Virginia, I guess, has a lot of extinct volcanoes in that area. Wow. There's a lot going on under the surface. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's probably what caused the earthquake that killed Jefferson's sister. Oh, my. But how is that related to volcanoes? It it all goes back to, I don't know, magma, (laughs) fissures fissures in the earth. You're not a volcano historian? I'm not a volcanologist. No. (laughs) Wow. No. That's next week. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Jefferson was going there because these waters were said to have soothing, healing powers. And his plan was to soak his aching bones in them and hopefully be healed. I love it. Things did not go according to plan. The amoebas. Let's look at a timeline of events. Okay. August 7th. He got in the hot springs. He tried the warm springs once. Okay. He called it a delicious bath and said he was going to do it twice a day from now on. Does he do that? August 14th. One week later, he's taken three baths a day. Wow. 15 minutes each. You know, not bad. That's nice. Yeah. Sounds like your kind of life. You know. Except you would do three baths a day, 60 minutes each. Oh, is, wow. Is, do you hear that being edited out? <laughs> <laughs> it's a loud sound of you editing that out. <laughs> and it was working for him. There were no symptoms of rheumatism. So he thought that it might have been eradicated in his words. But really, the amoebas ate off his leg. (laughs) Jesus. But he wanted to make sure that it took and that he never had to come back there again because he said it was an incredibly boring place. He said, so distressing and ennui, I never knew before. The water doesn't seem to be improving his mood. Okay. So to make sure that he never had to come back, he was going to do the full three-week course of soaking that people recommended back then. Three-week course? Yeah, so you, you soak, you stay there for three weeks, uh-huh. and you take your baths, and then you're cured. Okay. One week later, August 21st, everything had gone to hell. The amoebas. He wrote to his daughter that he wasn't sure if the springs would ultimately help his rheumatism, but they had wreaked havoc on him in another way. Oh, God. Specifically, his butt. He had grown a system of boils, he said. Ew. He had a large swelling on my seat that was increasing for several days past in size and hardness. He couldn't sit down except on the very corner of a chair. Sounds like folliculitis. It might be. It might be. And it was only getting worse. So his butt's covered in boils with a huge one on one of his butt cheeks. Yeah. And then. Painful. That sounds really painful. Yes. And then there was another swelling that was starting to manifest itself on his other butt cheek. Ew. Yeah. So what is happening? <laughs> what is this? Um, so we talked about how it's warmed by like magma and volcanic activity. Yes. Um, when I, I think of volcanoes, when I think of what was happening to Jefferson, because Jefferson's body 
He said that the springs caused eruptions on his body. What? Eruptions and imposthume, he said, which means abscesses, or a localized collection of pus formed as the product of inflammation and usually caused by bacteria. This is um, worse than the smallpox episode where you were telling me about boils in your mouth and stuff. Oh, yeah. That was our first episode. Was it? Yeah. And now you're... This is even worse. Yeah. Um, Yeah. This is even more graphic. It was likely a staph infection. I was going to say that next. Yeah. There you go. I was going to say if it wasn't folliculitis, it was staph. It's probably, it's likely that that's what it was. Because this water, obviously, it's not treated. So it, no. could, it could have come from the water. Um, but it's not common for people to get these kinds of diseases from this water, I guess, because well, of the temperature. It could have been an infection that then was, you know, exacerbated by the water. Yeah. I mean, it the back, the, because there's bacteria in the water. Yeah. Something could have entered some small wound. Or maybe he shared towels with some very boring people. I don't know. <laughs> Did they use towels back then? Um, I have to think they used some sort of towel. I don't know. Um, They didn't shake dry. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. They they all shook dry like dogs. (laughs) Um, But it was was so painful that he couldn't sit. He had to lie on his stomach to write. Oh. And he couldn't walk either. He needed help to get around. That's terrible. And staff can kill you. It can, yes. So what did he do? Um, He suffered. On October 7th, he wrote to John Adams for the first time since it had all happened in August, and he explained why it had taken so long for him to write back. These powerful waters caused, he said, imposthume and eruptions, and he said that he also had fever, colliquative sweats, which is profuse clammy sweats, and extreme debility. And to top it all off, he had to travel that way, over 100 miles of rocks and mountains. That sounds utterly nightmarish. Right? So painful. So, uh, in a carriage? Um, uh, probably. I, I don't think he was on horseback, but he was either on horseback either or in a carriage. Either one sounds yeah. really painful. Definitely, yeah. Hopefully he could lay down on his stomach in there somehow. Yeah, he said it reduced me to death's door. Oh, God. And he's lucky it didn't kill him. He is. How did? How, was he treated eventually? Not with anything that we would use, like antibiotics. Like, it, it just eventually healed. That is very lucky. Yeah. So that was his excuse for not replying promptly to Adams. And <laughs> That's a pretty good excuse. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Especially when you I can... mean, I let texts go by sometimes <laughs> and I don't have a good excuse. Next time I should be like, I have boils on my butt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't get back to you. I have boils on my butt. Make that you're out of office. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get back to you on, on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently dealing with boils on my bottom. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good excuse, especially when you compare that to, to Adams's own like non-excuses. That same year, John Adams was writing back to a friend after a little while. And this is this is his excuse. He wrote... Your kind letter of July 4th ought to have been answered sooner. My apology would be long and tedious. And that's all the apology he offered. He just (laughs) jumps right into the body of the letter, sails right past the need for excuses. I like that. I like it too. Sorry, I'm late. Yeah. I don't, you know, it it is what it is. It is. But that's not Jefferson's way. (laughs) Jefferson (laughs) says, let me explain. Here's what happened to my ass. (laughs) I also prefer John Adams' style here. He says, sorry, not sorry. It's perfect. No muss, no fuss, and no pus. Ew, 
Gross. Of course. I knew you were taking it to back to pus somehow. I always do. I didn't expect it. Back way. on the pus bus, everybody. <laughs> oh, God. I want to get off the pus bus. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. There's no stops. I'm really looking forward to hearing from this medical historian. You know what? I think, I think on that note, um, let's take a listen to my conversation with Tegan Kehoe, where we get into some weird, tragic, and personal parts of the history of healthcare. Let's do it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tegan Kehoe, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I know that I'm fascinated by the history of medicine and healthcare. I'm so excited to have you here. Your book, Exploring American Healthcare Through 50 Historic Treasures, um, it's very well titled. It's, it's really a treasure trove of historical stories told through these objects. I really want to dig into that book. But first, I'm curious, what drew you into specializing in the history of healthcare? And what was that journey like? That's a great question. And um, the answer is kind of twofold. In one sense, it was an accident. And in another sense, it wasn't. Um, in that I had long had a hobby interest in medical history within my academic interests in uh, being a historian, but I hadn't really specialized because I'm also a museum professional. So that itself was a specialty um, until I got my current job where I work at the museum at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Um, and so at that point, I sort of turned a hobby interest into um, something more serious. And it's just such an amazing combination of science and social history and history of ideas, um, and all of those things appeal to me. So, you know, the more I learn about medical history, the the deeper into it I get. Yeah, very cool. That's something that we found as well, doing the podcast and exploring these ideas is how integral medical history and healthcare was to the lives of everyone and how things evolve, yeah. how those things change. It's really, really exciting. And yeah, I guess congrats on finding a cool field to specialize in. <laughs> Thank you. I certainly um, enjoy it. Awesome. So I love learning things that I had no idea about just being kind of like knocked over with like, you know, just walloped with information from the very first item in your book, right out of the gate, <laughs> you know, it's not a dry sanitized view of the past because that first medical item, it's a, it's a wax model of a scrotum showing mm -hmm. the disease known as chimney sweeps cancer. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that disease. Sure. Um, so this was something that was um, becoming increasingly commonly understood and noticed in the 18th century. And in most places that had chimneys, essentially, there were people who needed to um, be chimney sweeps. Obviously, we have chimney sweeps today as well, but the chimneys are different and the technology is a lot mm -hmm. different. Um, but in the 18th century, um, it was often small children, usually boys, not always, um, who were physically climbing into people's chimneys with brushes and things to get into all of the nooks and crannies. Wow. Um, and they were typically um, boys who were as marginalized as possible within society because it was such an awful job. Um, and so the kind of the most well-known image of a chimney sweep would be, uh, you know, a small British boy. Um, but in the United States, it was often an African or African American, um, sometimes enslaved, sometimes not. Um, and so, you know, they were really marginalized and soot is carcinogenic and builds up anywhere there are folds. If you're doing the kind of work that they're doing, um, so anywhere on their body that there are folds, 
you get a buildup. And that's why cancer of the scrotum became a really common ailment uh, for chimney sweeps or people who had been chimney sweeps as children. Mm. It was really one of the first occupational health hazards uh, to be understood and certainly one of the first um, cancers to be linked with an occupational risk. And when that sort of became known, were there some kind of reforms that were implemented, uh, ways to prevent that in some ways? You would think. Um, I mean, the answer is yes, but not quickly. Mm. The real change didn't happen until it became a part of the greater movement for um, reform of industrial child labor. Um, And so once you have this laws like children have to be in school for part of the year and um, people who are employing children need to make sure they're fed. And I mean, that's the Mm. level that we were at in the early 19th century is, you know, a good child labor law is, you know, if you, if you employ a seven year old feed him lunch. Um, (laughs) So it was, it was definitely slow going, um, but reforms definitely happened. They weren't really the reason that, chimney sweeps stopped getting this particular cancer, it was really that the technology changed. Um, And that's, uh, and then it actually saw a resurgence because the same um, coal related carcinogen uh, can be found in shale oil that's used to grease certain machinery. And Mm. so then um, for a while, people working on that type of machinery uh, were getting chimney sweeps cancer. Wow. I apologize. I'm having my my first uh, full brain fart of the evening, which is uh, not remembering which machinery, um, as you know from our emails, but the listeners won't know. Um, I have an eight week old, and so the just the the words sometimes don't always happen, and that's real great for podcasting. But we'll do our best. <laughs> oh no! I mean, I um, I can empathize a bit. I I didn't go through half of what I imagine you went through as far as having a, a newborn, but. The, the sleep deprivation I know is real and yeah, it just, it's an adventure. It, it really is. It's, it's yeah. So yes. just being on the show, I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And I, I've listened to enough episodes that I assume this is the kind of show I can say brain fart on and I don't need to come up with a different term. Not, not at all. You could, you could say much worse than that and <laughs> we'd still be okay. All right. What's, what's something that kind of really, maybe during your research or writing, uh, surprised you uh, along the along the way and ended up in the book or didn't? Um, that's a good question. Um, so one of the ones that surprised me is in researching um, kind of the first vitamin craze in the early 20th century after vitamins had first been discovered. Um, uh, the artifact that I wound up uh, selecting for that was a can of beer that was supposedly fortified with vitamin D. Um, uh-huh. I don't know. I say supposedly because the historical sources I found, some of them weren't sure whether the process the company was using would actually work to fortify the beer. Um, so it was potentially fortified, but certainly adver- advertised that way. Um, and so that's that's kind of my go-to example of this surprised me because it's it's out there, but at the same time, it keys into a very real piece of medical history, which is that people latch on to new ideas and marketers latch on to new ideas. Um, and we've seen that again and again related to different vitamin crazes over the years, as well as other health fads. 
Yeah, that just makes me think like with no FDA, no regulation, like mm-hmm. leaving the beer out in the sun for a while, does that fortify it with <laughs> vitamin D? Because that, that might be enough for me to think, hey, it's good. And I mean, so much milk is fortified with vitamin D now that mm-hmm. I mean, it really sounds like they were ahead of their time, whether or not they were effective. And apparently mm-hmm. it didn't work out, I guess. No, it actually was only a couple of years that that company was trying that. Um, I wasn't able to discern why it didn't take off. Um, but I think that one of the things that I hope that readers get out of my book is sort of the um, the ways in which the past isn't that different from the present, as well mm. as the ways that it is different. And so, you know, approaching something like vitamin D beer, it, on the one hand, might sound really far-fetched, but it's not stupid. It's people coming up with, you know, the information they had and running with it. And people do that today all the time with healthcare related things. Um, and vitamin D was was new and the advertisement, you know, said things like harnessing the health giving powers of the sun. Um, they didn't just leave it out in the sun, but you, you were onto <laughs> something there. It was this idea that it's a sunshine beverage. And so I think just getting people to recognize sort of the a little bit of the thought process behind the various artifacts is to me what makes what makes a lot of these things interesting. Yeah. Um, so we focus a lot on presidential history. And mm-hmm. one of the items in your book uh, actually belonged to George Washington. Yes. What can you tell us about that? So the artifact in my book is um, a travel dental set. Um, not all that different except in materials from a travel dental set today. It's a little toothbrush that fits into a little case that keeps it clean and it's nice and compact yeah I looked um, at but that, he also had that picture in the book i was really surprised by how identical that looks to a travel toothbrush today right right except instead of being made out of plastic and maybe nylon bristles it's uh silver and um, probably animal hair bristles um the silver was largely to be fancy because this is a president mm-hmm. after all, but also partly because um, silver is apparently flavorless and many other metals are not. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was useful for teeth things. One of the other components of that set was a tongue scraper. Um, so the idea is that you bend this thin, flexible piece of metal and use it to scrape your tongue. Um, and so you'd want that to be flavorless. And in George Washington's day, many people, Washington included, subscribed to this vague idea that dental cleanliness was healthy and that it would prevent bad breath and that it might be able to prevent tooth decay. They didn't understand why yet. Mm. Um, it would be about a century later that they would understand why. Um, so it's really interesting to see people caring about dental hygiene at the time because they were kind of going on a medical hunch. Yeah. And, and hygiene, it sounds like it was important, but other medical factors, especially with George Washington, I know that when he was inaugurated, he only had, I think, one remaining tooth of his own. And that Mm -hmm. might be because of, uh, I've read, maybe the mercury treatments he was taking for various things contributed to that, uh, possibly Mm -hmm. hygiene, I don't know. Um, I know that his dentures uh, are held, uh, there's a pair of them at Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. And I I see a lot about them today, because people are kind of taken aback when they realize, obviously, they're not made of wood, but some of the components in them Uh, I believe included maybe hippopotamus ivory, and then also the teeth of some enslaved people. Yes. So that story is is complicated, because when when people hear that, 
certainly there are people who kind of rush to say, oh, no, Washington wouldn't do that. Well, he held about 300 people Mm. in slavery. So he might have done that. Um, But then there's also this kind of for people who have been um, like I have and, and many others recently exposed to a lot of ways in which the history that we have learned was overly sanitized, we kind of jump to the opposite conclusion, um, mm. which in this case, you know, the opposite conclusion might be that he deliberately went out and had people he enslaved give them his teeth. Um, and that's much, much closer to the truth. Um, but it's not actually entirely documented that that's what happened. Um, so in a ledger book um, that was kept for his household, um, it was noted that he had uh, paid for nine teeth of quote unquote Negroes. That was the appropriate term at the time. Um, and the the price was there. It was much lower than the going rate for human teeth. Yes, there was a going rate for human teeth at the time. Okay. Um, and so it's not clear whether these teeth were purchased from people he was holding in slavery, people he quote unquote owned, uh, whether they were sold by um, free black people, whether they were sold, but by someone, someone else was enslaving. There are just so many, so many possibilities with that one little ledger line. Um, And of course, then the question becomes, well, why would you pay for them at all if the people are enslaved? But there is tons of hypocrisy in the slavery Mm. system. So the fact that, you know, sometimes they were paid, they were often responsible for their own food and shelter. So sometimes people who were being held in slavery did have money. And um, so it's all so complicated. And we don't, we don't know a lot about it. Um, We do know that the teeth in his dentures were a mix of ivory and human and selling your teeth was something that people did back then, typically out of desperation. Um, and uh, teeth from cadavers were also used in dentures at the time. So lots of things going on, except for wooden teeth. Yeah, yeah. You really hit the nail on the head as far as talking about the, the complicated nature of that and what we don't know and um, mm-hmm. can only kind of speculate about. But it's it's still, it's it's just a powerful kind of image, the idea that the institution of slavery was involved in so many things and you don't even think about imagining George Washington and the very teeth in his mouth being related to that too is is just kind of astounding no matter how exactly they got there it shows just how involved uh, he was and, and that institution was in the United States absolutely Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you are a history nerd, or even if you are a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. That's things like how Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge and was able to escape the car but left a woman inside to die and didn't report it until a day later. Or how the Pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he never existed. Or how the FBI had a file on Frank Sinatra that was 2,000 pages long. Or even how on opening day at Disneyland, it was so hot and the pavement had been so recently poured that women's heels sunk into it. 
And we do all of this while drinking a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's episode. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hashtag history can be found on all major podcast platforms, and that's hashtag spelled out, hashtag history. We can also be found on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the breakthroughs in the book is an incubator Mm -hmm. for treating premature infants. And I, I found that really fascinating because you tied it in not just to the technology, but to the evolution of, of the idea that babies born prematurely were even worthy of saving. Um, mm-hmm. That was really interesting to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so the early history of infant incubators is um, pretty wild. There were a number of obstetricians in the United States in the mid-late 19th century who were interested in importing this fairly new technology. It was becoming popular in France and Germany. I don't know why France and Germany and not any of their neighbors, Mm. um, but France and Germany uh, were starting to do this. People had been incubating um, chicken eggs and things like that for many centuries, uh, but the idea of creating a warm environment um, for a human baby who was either medically fragile or premature. Um, And prematurity uh, basically always leads to some form of medical fragility, whether it's short term or long term. Um, That was fairly new at the time. But some historians, um, including uh, one who wrote a very popular book whose uh, name escapes me at the moment, I apologize, this is another, I'll I'll blame my baby (laughs) for uh, the fact that I I can't remember. But many people kind of credit this one guy as being the person who popularized incubators in the United States. And he was not an obstetrician. He was not a doctor. Um, He often used doctor in front of his name. uh, But that, as far as historians can tell, did not correlate to an actual medical degree. He told a couple of different stories about what his medical education had been, and they didn't quite line up. And um, so he his name was Martin Cooney. And he popularized incubators by bringing them to world's fairs and amusement park type things. He had a, a running station at Coney Island for many years. Um, and his, his very first one was um, at a world's fair in uh, Nebraska. And so he popularized these by having live babies in his 
his shows. And these were, there was a scientific display at these world's fairs. This was not in the scientific display. It was along the midway. So all of the um, kind of sensational things, the the camel rides, that sort of thing, uh, were right next to the baby incubators at the Trans-Mississippian International Exposition in 1898. That was the first time that uh, baby incubator was used in the United States. So he's not a doctor. Um, where, where are these babies no. coming from? Uh, so they were they were coming from hospitals and home births. Um, home births were much more common then than they are today. Uh, hospital births were on the rise among especially the upper middle class and uh, wealthy. Um, but basically, if the hospital didn't have anything for a baby, the parents would be very desperate. And so if they heard that this was happening, they brought their babies to this this showman. Some of them thought he was a doctor, probably, because he said he was, sure. um, but he was he was the only option. Um, and it is pretty miraculous that uh, he had such good success rates, but um, he did employ nurses. So my guess is that those nurses are a big yeah. part of the reason that, that those babies, uh, many of them did so well, certainly not all of them. Um, and so more and more doctors started to take notice as he did this for a couple decades. And so that in combination with the efforts of um, Joseph DeLee and some other um, obstetricians really brought incubators into, into common usage. Doctors started to recognize that it was worth their time because they might actually get a good result mm. in trying to save a very preterm infant. Um, and you kind of touched upon in your question there was also a strong current at the time of feeling like it wasn't worth it to save a very fragile child because they wouldn't go far in life. Mm. Um, and so there was this idea, first of all, that all preemies would always be weak, which we now know medically isn't true, wasn't even true at the time, but that's what was believed. Um, and then there was this current of eugenics of what's the point of saving a baby who might be weak or might be disabled. Um, and early 20th century was a, I don't want to say the heyday of eugenics, because eugenics has had a couple of heydays. Um, but it was a period of time when the idea that you could better the human race by making all people be the people who were currently privileged in the status quo uh, was, was kind of the, that's a really oversimplified version of, of eugenics. And but this, this idea that, you know, white, able bodied, people were the best people. And so there was this idea that um, kids, preemies shouldn't be saved. Mm. This became very personal to me because I had a preemie. Um, I still have her, but she's no longer a preemie. Um, and so uh, it was really surreal when I learned that she was going to be born premature to be thinking about my book and to be thinking about this um, 1938 uh, incubator in the book that was heated with a light bulb it's this wooden box with a pillow inside and a window, and that's basically it. Um, wow. But they worked. They didn't work as well as the ones that uh, my daughter was in, um, but they did They did definitely work. Um, and then after she was born and as she was being cared for in the hospital, um, I realized that her experience was also tied in with another chapter in my book, which is the one on um, methods of feeding people who can't uh, chew and swallow normally, because mm. about half of that brief chapter is about feeding tubes. Um, and so my my daughter had a feeding tube for um, quite some time before she was literally big enough to take a bottle or breastfeed. 
um, because she was so small when she was born. Um, and so I was so, so grateful for this little sanitary plastic, uh, feeding tube that was, you know, changed frequently and was a precise diameter. Um, because, you know, if she had needed a feeding tube, you know, 150 years ago, it might've been made out of leather, um, or something Mm -hmm. else that was just, uh, really didn't really work uh, very well. Yeah. It doesn't sound quite as pleasant for sure. Um, I know that we, uh, you know, everybody's experience is different, but, um, our son was born, uh, five weeks early. And, um, because of that, because they knew that was happening, there were some folks from the NICU in the room when it happened mm-hmm. just to be ready. And I, we're so grateful that they were because when he came out, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't breathing on his own. We didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. They immediately, um, took him, were taking care of him. There was a feeding tube involved pretty soon after that. Mm-hmm. Um, they figured out what he had. He had a, a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which was a little mm-hmm. hole in his diaphragm. And mm-hmm. most of his internal organs that are supposed to be, you know, down in the uh, the medical term, I think is belly area, um, uh-huh. they were up where um, his left lung was supposed to be. And so that it wasn't able oh. to develop fully. So right. that surgery involved moving various organs back through that hole, suturing up that hole. Mm-hmm. When he was three days old, he had that surgery. Um, wow. He was in the NICU for two weeks. He was on a feeding tube. Um, uh, the thoughts of the this the makeup of that feeding tube and the history of it weren't anything that were occurring to me or my wife at the time, but right. knowing the number of ounces he was able to take and every every mm-hmm. day just trying to get to that goal of him being able yeah. to um, not need that feeding tube so he could come home, that was, I can't imagine what it was like before any of that kind of treatment or uh, medical advancement existed. So certainly that that yeah. chapter resonated with me as well. Yeah. No, it's it's the kind of technology that you don't think a lot about until you or a loved one needs it. Absolutely. Um which I think uh a number of people who worked at the the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit that my daughter was in said, you don't know about us until you need us. Yeah. Um and I did know about their existence cuz I had acquaintances who had experiences with it, but um but yeah, and uh, feeding tubes weren't, you know, invented for preemies because there are a variety of different medical conditions that can uh, cause a person to short-term or long-term have difficulty eating. Um, and they really uh, took off in the early 20th century. Um, I think 1910 was when the first uh, really effective ones um, were uh being used, and that was uh, through the patient's nose, um, all the way to the duodenum, which is the first part of the intestine. Mm. Um, so my daughter and and probably your baby as well, um, the feeding tube was just going to the stomach. Yeah. Um, but for some people, the stomach isn't an effective way to feed them, mm. either because the medical problem itself is is a problem with the stomach, or for some other reason. Um, and so then, also in the early twentieth century, you started to see the development of um, surgeries to create a stoma, a hole from the outside of the body in, so you could put a feeding tube directly into the stomach or directly into the intestine. Um, antibiotics were a very important invention oh. for that. I feel like I come back to antibiotics every with every topic in medicine. How can you not? Right. Um, 
but uh, there have been a number of different innovations that have helped with that. And in the 1980s, the kind of advent of minimally invasive surgery made a lot of those feeding tubes more possible because you could give people who wouldn't have been able to withstand the surgery, you could give them a feeding tube, um, a stoma type feeding tube, a permanent or long-term one because of minimally invasive techniques. Um, So the whole history in terms of how far we've come, the artifact in that chapter is actually a pap boat. It's a ceramic dish, a lot like a gravy boat that was used to pour food down patients' throats. Um, So we've come from there to where even people who need a feeding tube lifelong can have, you know, active lives. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. That whole experience changed the way I think about um, even birth. Like I know some people doing Mm -hmm. at home births and and they have doulas and um, they they can be very well trained and, and well prepared. But I also think that, you know, in our experience, we probably needed every bit of that medical expertise as close as possible. And we're very lucky to have had it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so I had my daughter in Boston. That's I live in Somerville, which is right outside of Boston. And, um, you know, because the book was so fresh on my mind when she was born, you know, I did mention to some of my care team, it feels so weird because I write about medical history. That's what I study. And so I know the early history of incubators. Or sometimes I would just mention, you know, they'd ask, oh, what do you do? And I say, oh, well, I study medical history. Um, And so they'd say, oh, so you know about, you know, early preemie care. And I would say, yes, Coney Island, or yes, Martin Cooney, or something like that. But they would say, the Kennedy baby. Mm. And I actually had not heard that story um, until after my daughter was born. Um, so in, uh, of course, I later looked it up after, you know, after a little time to adjust to, uh, my situation, my daughter's situation. She's doing great now. That's great um, to hear, by the way. And is actually, thank you. Yeah. Um, and she is not a long-term feeding tube, uh, user. She is a very, very avid bottler and breastfeeder. Um, but, uh, but yeah, once, once the, the shock wore off, I did learn about, um, what, the various nurses and respiratory therapists and NPs and everyone were talking about when they said, oh, the Kennedy baby. So it happened in Boston. Um, so I'm surprised that I hadn't heard before. But like they say about the NICU, you don't you don't learn about the NICU until you need it. Um, so this was a tragedy that happened in 1963, um, but not the assassination. It happened a couple months before. Um, so JFK and Jackie Kennedy uh, were expecting a baby. Um, they had two living children, but had also suffered a miscarriage and a stillbirth uh, before Caroline and John Jr. were born. Um, and this was going to be the first baby born to a sitting president since Grover Cleveland's children mm. um, in the 1890s. And uh, on August 7th, uh, Mrs. Kennedy went, in, went into labor at 36 weeks pregnant. Um, and so just just a couple weeks early, but early enough. Um she was on Squaw Island on Cape Cod at the time. She was helicoptered to a nearby Air Force base, which had a hospital that was kind of at the ready because they knew they were the nearest hospital to um, the pregnant first lady. And uh, her husband was flown in from the White House. They named the baby Patrick after JFK's grandfather. Um, so what ended up happening with, with Patrick, um, this, is, this is not a happy story. Mm. 
Um, so there was an intense battle for the, the child's life. Um, he struggled to breathe from his first breath, and um, the care team had suctioned excess secretions from his mouth and nose, um, which was, you know, standard at the time for um, for an infant having trouble breathing. Um, they placed him in a pre-warmed incubator, also had been standard for a few decades at that point, and gave him oxygen. But uh, the little air sacs in our lungs need to be able to expand and relax without collapsing as we inhale and exhale to be able to oxygenate the blood. And in Patrick's case, the his immature lungs couldn't make this happen. Um, at the time, this condition was called the hyaline membrane disease. Um, today, it's just called respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and hyaline membrane, uh, I actually had trouble finding a, a good description. I'm, I'm at the point as a historian who is not a scientist, where I don't necessarily need descriptions to be lay-friendly, but they need to be a little lay-friendlier than sure. uh, some some things. But my understanding is that there are membranes that should be there, and then there are films that form on those membranes uh, if things are going wrong. And that's what the hyaline membrane is, is it's this kind of coating on the... Um, on the air sacs. Um, so Patrick and his mother were flown to Boston Children's Hospital from the Cape. Um, and I was thinking uh, how long that would take. That would be about two hours by car if there was no traffic. And there's never no traffic. Um, so I'm glad that they were able to fly. And uh, most of what I know about his story is from a book that was written um, by a respiratory therapist uh, more recently, and he wasn't uh, involved in the baby's care, um, but uh, that's someone named Michael Ryan. Um, so he wrote a, a compelling book about this case, and he interviewed many of the clinicians involved. Um, and Dr. Jim Hughes, who was a chief resident at Boston Children's Hospital at the time, uh, told Ryan that when he received the phone call saying that the president's son was about to be transferred there, um, his first thought was that it was a hoax. Hmm. Um, but then the reality uh, kind of sank in. Um, and so it was going to be an extremely high profile case for the hospital, um, as well as, you know, for this family who's just terrified for their four pound, 10 ounce baby um, who wasn't breathing well. There was a period of time uh, when he was looking better, but uh, that period was short-lived. Um, a sample of Patrick's blood was taken across the street to Boston Lying In Hospital um, because they had a blood gas machine. Um, so I'm going to pause and explain a couple of those terms there. Uh, so uh, Boston Lying In Hospital. Um, a lying in hospital was an old term for um, a childbirth hospital. Okay. Um, so lying in was... Um, a way of describing uh, childbirth and kind of the period following. And it was um, most lying in hospitals were for women who weren't necessarily going to be able to pay out of pocket for high quality hospital care. It was they were often charity hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, I say out of pocket, but uh, a lot of that, the period of time when things were being named lying in uh, was before health insurance. Health insurance is kind of early 20th century. Um, in the mid 20th century, um, Boston Lying In Hospital was part of a series of mergers of, I think, four different hospitals um, that are now called Brigham and Women's Hospital. That's across the street from Boston Children's Hospital. Um, and Brigham and Women's is actually um, where I had my daughter and where she lived for the first weeks of her life. So the other thing I was going to define there was blood gas machine. Um, and at the time, this was a new technology, and uh, the Lying In Hospital had one of only a few in the country, um, but uh, it was used to determine from a sample of blood 
um, how well oxygenated the blood was, how much oxygen was in the blood, as well as how much carbon dioxide. Today, this is really, really, really standard of care. Like, the idea that there were only a few of these machines in the country in 1963 is just one of those moments of, wow, we've made a lot of progress in the past 60 years. But uh, it was really important to use that to monitor Patrick's blood because it became clear that he really wasn't getting enough oxygen. His lungs were not providing him with what he needed. Um, So the team added more oxygen to um, his incubator and his uh, condition continued to worsen. Um, They were trying, you know, every possible intervention. This is the president's baby. Mm -hmm. Um, Finally, they put him in a hyperbaric chamber. Um, So you might have heard of them as the thing they put scuba divers in if they resurface too quickly. Um, It's a chamber with altered air pressure. Um, And they're also sometimes had been used at the time for um, pediatric cardiac surgery. Uh, So making use of the fact that oxygen can dissolve more readily in the blood under increased air pressure. Um, it wasn't usually uh, used for respiratory distress syndrome, um, but it was it was this last ditch effort. Um, Patrick's father and grandmother were waiting outside of the chamber, but his mother, as far as I can tell, was still recovering in the hospital where she had given birth. Um, so Jackie wasn't able to be at his bedside because she was too ill herself. Um, and nothing worked, and his condition... Um, continued to worsen, and Patrick died at 39 hours old. Mm. Um, So the happy part of this story um, is that this really changed the way people treat prematurity. Um, So, you know, I hadn't heard this story um, until NICU nurses told me about it. But for people who had a child 50 or 60 years ago, the Kennedy baby was not obscure. Um, Of course, the Kennedys were one of the most famous and closely watched first families we've had. Um, But families who had gone through the same ordeal were seeing their baby's condition in the newspapers for the first time. Um, And people who researched lung development and prematurity suddenly had a much easier time finding funding to work on this particular problem. Mm. Um, Now, this is an ongoing problem with medical research is that not everything can be high profile um, and being high profile is a great way to secure funding. Um, But RDS, respiratory distress syndrome, um, had been the leading cause of death among premature babies. um, And it was really... uh, poorly understood, but there was this burst of research. Um, A lot of funding came through for research. People who had been working on it for a while finally had more opportunities. Um, And so it became much better understood and new treatments became available. Um, Ventilators appropriate for preemies came on the market in the early 1970s. Um, Synthetic pulmonary surfactant um, inserted directly into babies' lungs using a breathing tube became available in 1990. And the surfactant is the thing that... stops the actual problem from happening in respiratory distress syndrome. The surface tension on the little air sacs is the thing is the problem that prevents them from being able to expand and contract in a baby who has this condition. Our lungs normally naturally produce enough of this surfactant to allow that surface tension to be diminished enough that that the sacs are flexible. Um, so having that um, synthetic surfactant, was really, really huge for this syndrome. Um, now, um, respiratory distress syndrome on its own without other complications has a 95% survival rate. Wow. 
So my daughter didn't have this syndrome, although she did have some trouble breathing early on. So she did receive some surfactant. A lot of preventative measures for respiratory distress syndrome are now a standard part of care for babies who are born very premature. And so when she's older, I look forward to telling my daughter about the two shots of medication I received the night before she was born to help uh, kind of jumpstart her lungs production of the surfactant. Um, because I don't actually know the reason. That's one thing I have not yet looked up in understanding, you know, our medical situation. But the shots go in the fleshy part of the butt. Oh. Um, so by the time my kid's a toddler, I believe that she will find this story hilarious <laughs> that, yes, I, I had to get needles stuck in my butt to help you breathe. Um, and I was happy to, yeah. uh, because and now if you can hear her cry when she wants something, you can tell that she, she breathes very, very well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember you know, the first time we heard my son cry and, it you know, it's 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 amazing. Yeah. The the things that you don't think about until you need them or don't have them is. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I have a, <laughs> I have another butt story, not uh, related to uh, hearing one's child cry for the first time, but please uh, related to presidents and feeding tubes. Oh yeah. Um, so this is this is a short story, but uh, President James Garfield, um, after he was shot in 1881, um, was uh, fed rectally for uh two and a half months um meeting that his doctors put a feeding feeding tube um up his rectum and they inserted a mixture of whiskey and enzyme treated beef and that was standard of care at the time that was that was uh not experimental um possibly less controversial than bleeding george washington um i don't think it worked (laughs) um but the whiskey was because at the time, um, hard liquor was considered to be very stimulating. It was considered to be bracing. Mm. And so that was supposed to give you vitality and, and strength. And um, the health benefits of liquor were very much debated at the time. Um, but they were debated differently from today in that uh, putting putting whiskey in a rectal feeding enema um, was not itself controversial. And then these these beef peptides uh, were also supposed to be strength giving because you know it was believed that beef is one of the the hardiest foods and the most most strength giving. Um, and uh, he probably didn't die because of the whiskey and beef peptides, uh, but uh, he did quote unquote eat that mixture for the last two months of his life wow, um, I, and did not recover from from that. I I did not know that. I mean that that makes sense. Probably also the best way to deliver uh, the vitamin D. Um, wow. That. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching a South Park episode where, you know, <laughs> taking food rectally was, was part of um, the joke. I didn't realize how mm-hmm. um, how that was an actual treatment or an ongoing treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And that was uh, the ancient Egyptians fed people rectally sometimes as well. So there's a there's a long history of that. It just, I don't know, it takes, it seems to take a lot of the joy out of food, if you ask me. I would say so, yes, yeah. Are there, Mm -hmm. do you find that there are themes or ideas in healthcare history that you find yourself going back to or wanting to explore more in your research? Absolutely. Um, So I think what I try to set up for readers in my book is kind of the themes to look out for in the book is that everyone 
in medical history, whether they are the patient, whether they're the provider, whether they're a researcher, um, is making decisions with what they know. And that might be information they know, and it might be kind of contextual feelings they know, things like whether you trust the government and things like whether you can pay for the top of the line treatment and all of those different things um, are factors that go into kind of the questions people are trying to answer when they're making medical decisions. And those questions can be technological, they can be about what causes disease and what causes health, they can be about who to trust. Um, All of those different factors are a part of what make that story. Um, And so I encourage readers to sort of see that in the book. Um, And so that's also something that really interests me. Um, And in terms of I don't have any um, active, active projects at the moment because my newborn is my active Mm -hmm. project. But in terms of research that I'm planning to go more deeply into in the future, I'm really interested in um, the history of research methodologies within medicine. Um, And so uh, things like how did we get to randomized controlled trials as one of the the gold standards, especially double-blind randomized controlled trials. But also there have been many instances in medicine when it wouldn't be possible or ethical to do a controlled trial. Um, One of the big famous examples is in the uh, first half of the 20th century, the long kind of research struggle to prove a link between cigarettes and lung cancer. There's no ethical way to do a clinical trial on that one. Um, Here, smoke a pack a day for 30 years. You smoke a pack a day for 60 years. How many of you are getting cancer? Um, And so they couldn't do the gold standard and how there there are other ways to do good studies, but there's a history behind how those good studies are created. And so that very much interests me. And I'm interested both from kind of the epistemology perspective, the the how do we know we know Mm -hmm. the things that we know. Um, the philosophy of science perspective, um, but also the ways that medical research intersects with social history and with structures of power and privilege. Some of the most famous studies in American history have been wildly corrupt. Um, the Tuskegee syphilis mm-hmm. study, which was continued for decades beyond the point at which it was medically useful, um, and a core part of the study was denying treatment to black men who were infected with syphilis. Um, They came into the study already having syphilis, but they were prevented from getting treatment um, for decades or until their death, whichever came first. Mm. Um, And the study was only shut down because it became uh, widely publicized. Um, Someone within the public health department, um, the US public health department was running the study. He tried multiple times bringing it to his superiors saying, "This, this isn't okay. And finally, he talk to a journalist. And that's, that's when it really was blown open and ended in the 1970s. Wow. Um, so sorry, that's a little bit of a digression. But uh, looking at those different sides, the philosophy of science and the power and politics of science um, is, is a big research interest of mine. Wow, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot to dig into. So that's exciting. Yeah, and depressing in some ways, but exciting. <laughs> yes, I um, That's one of the things with studying well, history in general, but especially medical history, as I find myself studying some very depressing stuff. Yeah. But there's also a lot of hope from it, too. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes there's a light at the end of the tunnel, or maybe mm-hmm. when that tunnel is um, feeding whiskey and beef to James Garfield. I don't know if light's <laughs> the right word, but... At least there's whiskey. Yes, that's true. <laughs> right. 
Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So where can where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? So I have a website, TeganKehoe.com. I try to make sure that if people can spell my name, they can find me. Um, and uh, if you're interested in my book, it is available um, from a number of major retailers, both online and in person. I love it when people, you know, order it through their local bookstore. Um, I love it when people tell their library about the book as well. Libraries really do benefit authors. Um, and if you want to support independent bookstores but don't have a specific one in mind, um, bookshop.org is a great way to do that. And I have a site within bookshop.org. So again, if you can spell my name, you can find me. I'm theoretically on Twitter, also at Tegan Kehoe. Um, on Facebook, I'm Tegan Kehoe Writer. Um, so I, I try to keep it consistent for folks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories. And it thank was you. really a pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, wow. You know, that interview was so unexpectedly personal. Yeah. Um, the fact that she was even interviewing with us while having an eight-week-old, that to me is miraculous that she could even put two words together because the sleep deprivation becomes mental illness and becomes almost like brain damage. Yeah. I mean, it's just so impactful. So I was, I'm so grateful that she found it in herself to, to do that for us. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I definitely can relate to that feeling of not knowing what would have happened without the medical advancements we had for our son. Right. Um, first and foremost, having medical expertise seconds away from his birth. He didn't go a second without the oxygen he needed yeah. and, and the intervention he needed. And then his longer term care and surgery at three days old. I just, it's amazing the technology and abilities that came together to save him. So I'm just in awe. <laughs> uh, I've always been in awe of his medical team and I've always been in awe of the medical collaboration and miracle in a way that happened yeah. to promote his life as a premature baby, but also as a, a baby with um, congenital diaphragmatic hernias. So, yeah, it's just it's such a personal way to think about it. Yeah, definitely. And it, it puts a, a whole different perspective on learning about like the history of the different devices and advancements that that made that possible. Exactly. Like the feeding tube, the incubator, all yeah. of those things. I mean, he was in an incubator for two weeks. Yeah. And all of those things, like feeding him through a feeding tube through his nose, all of those things saved him. Yeah. And they're, they weren't always there as an option. And um, yeah, we really have it good. <laughs> yeah. And we're very lucky. Because in many, in many um, capacities, he wouldn't have made it in many different scenarios or times. But I, I really liked her. I really um, am fascinated by her research. And um, I really enjoyed listening to her. Yeah, and definitely. I thought it was very genuine and authentic and fascinating. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it really was a pleasure. And I would say that she, Tegan Kehoe, is definitely invited to our future dinner party yes. of historian guests. Um, how we ingest the food, then, well, that's that's up to the individual. <laughs> that is that was so bizarre. Yeah, I just feel like injecting food through the anus. I just don't understand. Like number one, my question for Tegan is, has that ever worked? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I mean, really? Can they prove that that really worked? That's my first question. And second of all, it just seems like so opposite 
of what that hole is meant for. It, I have questions too. I have so um, many questions. How does your how does your food not become septic and bacteria infested? You know, that's it's it's on the. It's top my third of, question. It's on the top of my list of things that I am not going to Google. Oh my um, gosh. But I'm curious about. Aren't you glad we're not one of those podcasts that like talks about something and then tries it? Yeah, I'm very glad. That's called jackass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we are jackasses, but we're not jackass. <laughs> right. Yes. Anyway, thank you, Tegan, for, you know, your stories, your medical ones and your personal ones. Yes. We appreciate your candidness and your willingness to share with us. Yes. And the book is out now and it's it's really a fascinating journey through medical history and it, it makes you feel like you're visiting these different museums and seeing these pieces. Go Tegan. Next week, we are going to deviate from the founding era. Really? Yes. We you are- know, I was just thinking we need to do that a little bit. I'm getting I'm getting a little bit worn out. You're getting tired <laughs> of these folks? Not, of, not tired of them. I just... Um... Yeah, I want to move on a little. Wow, <laughs> Let's move I didn't, forward. I didn't know you felt this way. I only felt this way like near the end of this last episode. <laughs> okay. Wow. I just was thinking, wow, like how many more stories about them are oh my there? God, I feel like this is this is like when you have a friend and the friend is like, Oh, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm breaking up with my girlfriend. And then you're like, Oh god, I hated her so much. Oh no. And they had no idea that you felt that way. No, I don't hate what we've done for what you've done (laughs) and no way am i saying that i'm just saying i i really you want a little variety quite recently felt like oh yeah i could use a little variety i want to meet new people wow through your through your lens okay well we're gonna be doing that a little bit um cool well i don't know i don't know people is the right word dogs we're going back to goats what no we are going to look at the early 1900s to a presidential rivalry that played out in the burgeoning American toy industry. Okay. Yeah. Not exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> oh, you're gonna love it. Okay, I'm excited. Yes. I yeah. Can we move further past toys and get into people too? Um, there's gonna be some people. Okay, that's yeah. nice. If you like what you heard, spread the word. Um, if you hated it, write to us at sawbones at maximumfun.com. Oh, wait. We're not sawbones? No. I get so confused. I felt like <laughs> we were sawbones. For a second. Thank you for listening to Plotting Through the Presidents. Find out more at plodpod.com. Consider joining our Patreon for bonus materials and perks. And thank you for plotting along with us. Thanks as always. Bye. I'm currently dealing with boils on my bottom. <laughs>